I started a joke. I can talk about my dad a little bit. Can I say son of a bitch? <laughs> Welcome to Into the Woods with Stuart Strauss. Today we have a very special guide with us. We're going to be looking for the vortex deep inside the forest. And when we do discover this vortex, we're going to find out what makes us laugh, what makes us cry, and why we get up on stage to do both. I'd like to welcome David Niker, actor, comedian, stand-up, improv artist, and my friend. We met working on Twin Peaks, so David's also known as a Black Lodge woodsman. Everybody, let's welcome David Niker. Hi, David. How the heck are you? Hey, Stuart. Thank you for having me. I'm not just a Black Lodge woodsman. I'm the cutest woodsman. That's what they say, but as long as I'm the best-looking one, without a doubt, you know, then, <laughs> hey, that's all there is to that. Well, some woman did tag me on Twitter, the cutest woodsman. Yeah, I, I'm still pissed about that, but okay. Well, no, I, yeah. I asked her to. Okay. David, let me ask you about your upcoming comedy special, which you must be excited about. I'm excited just hearing about it. I am super excited about it. Thank you very much. It's coming up January 26th. That's a Saturday night uh, in Hollywood at the Oh My Ribs Entertainment Theater. That's in the complex. Uh which is at like Sunset and Vine right over there. I'm and, sorry, not Sunset, um, Santa Monica and Vine. And the name again is? Oh My Ribs. And you can... Uh, and Oh My Ribs is a theater. We'll see a sign out front. Oh My Ribs, uh, you know. Yeah, you'll see my picture in the window. Oh, great, and, great, excellent. It's the address uh, is... Oh, you don't need to okay. pull it out right now, but we can certainly put a link up to it. Yeah, uh, thanks. No time at all. Yeah, you and, can go to ohmyribs.com and get tickets, and I suggest you do that because it is a, an intimate theater, and it's going to sell out. And how intimate is it, David? I mean, how many seats does 50, it hold? 50, 50 seats. 50 seats. Yeah. So it is uh, first come, first serve by buying your tickets now. Don't, yeah. don't lose out, folks. And again, that's on the 26th, Saturday. 26th. It, in Hollywood, lots to do in that neighborhood, to say the least. And, uh, you know, should yep. be a good time. And tell us, tell me a little more. Um, it's, you know, it's my best bits from the last, uh, my first eight years of stand-up comedy. It's stuff that I've tested and tried at clubs and festivals all over the country. And uh, it's funny stuff. And I want to get it recorded and start writing more funny stuff. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about going all over the country, which I think is great, you know, I mean, it's the only way to really get out there in woodshed when you have the opportunity. Uh, do you find different reactions in different parts of the country with similar material? Yeah, yes and no, but mostly no. Um, I mean, there's some material that I'll only do in L.A. that's about L.A. or that's very, very liberal, but I find that my viewpoint... Um, seems to go over okay no matter where i go and that's good and you're from the midwest originally is yeah that i right? grew up in chicago yeah and um let's hear a little about your upbringing 
Well, uh, you know, it wasn't too bad. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, I went to Chicago Public Schools. I uh, my mom and dad were divorced when I was a kid, and uh, I, uh, you know, I was just a kid in Chicago. But when I was about uh, nineteen, I actually booked a speaking role in Goldie Hawn's Wildcats, playing Goon Number Two, and that. It sort of changed my life. Uh, I, you know, I earned a bunch more money than I had been making. Allowed me uh, to to do some things, and uh, in, met some people that I otherwise wouldn't have met. That you know propelled me down uh, a whole new life path for me. And that was filmed on location in Chicago, or here in Los Angeles, or tell me more. The exteriors were all filmed in Chicago, and the interiors were all filmed in Los Angeles. And did you work both? Or? No, I only worked in Chicago. Okay, so you were a local hire. Yes. And uh, the director, or first AD, one of the ADs obviously liked you, or casting director liked you right from the start? or Yeah, it was an open casting call. For yeah. guys who look like football players. Yeah. And, you know, ever since I'm nine years old, old men come up and grab my arm and say, you play ball, son? <laughs> so, you know, and I did play yeah. football and stuff. David, and, uh, just to give the fans a little more description, how tall are you, Dave? I'm also one of the taller woodsmen. Yes. I'm, I'm six not four. the tallest. <laughs> I think Robert is as tall is as he? I am. Yeah, or a little yeah. taller. Um, I'm six four, and uh, I weigh... In excess of 250 pounds. Okay, well, In Excess was a great band out of Australia, <laughs> and, uh, you know, let uh, Michael Hutchins rest in peace. But you know what? David doesn't look like he's in excess of anything, folks. He looks like he's in very good shape and could tackle for you right now, if need be. And, and I would love to, actually. Yeah, he would love to. Well, <laughs> stay away from these brittle bones, please. <laughs> Anyway, uh, David and I were met working on Twin Peaks, uh, The Return. We worked in a couple episodes, or parts, as uh, they like to be called, in, uh, well, 2015 into 16, a little bit. And, um, you know, so it's like so many of the things, we didn't really know what we were doing or what the outcomes would be or outcome would be, but... You know, after it all aired, a couple shots that we were in together, we were both in part eight together, and we were in part 11 together, and both became pretty iconic scenes for the woodsmen, for us and fans, putting the connections together. Uh, so that's been a pretty exciting ride, and it's a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. We were just seen in a manger uh, this last Christmas holiday here, which just passed. We're just into the first few days of 2019 right now so it's been you know just such a fun ride but david's thing like we say he is a working comic he goes out he's out there he's getting a shot right now to get it all you know consummated into a special and um you know he's a funny guy i know that just from knowing him He's a good guy. You're probably going to enjoy yourselves. So, David, one more time. Let's plug that thing again right now, Mr. David Niker. January 26th at Oh My Ribs. You can get tickets at ohmyribs.com. And it's called Dave's Debut. It's my debut comedy album recording. Fantastic. Well, we'll be there. And that is in the heart of Hollywood, California. Yes, so it is. come on down. 
And uh, speaking of coming on down, you know all the good eating there is around there? In Roscoe's, I believe, is within minutes of there. You probably walked to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles from there, I imagine. Yeah, I think. You know, maybe, maybe you don't want to walk. It's Santa Monica. Quick Uber. Sunset. Quick Uber. You yeah. Know. Anyhow, uh, looking forward to it. So let's talk about uh, developing your act and where that comes from. I've got a question I was thinking about. Go here. ahead. What was what was the first thing you were paid for that let you know that you were now a professional actor or comedian? The first thing that really kind of said, "Hey, they pay you for this." Or, well, I think the first thing where I, where I had that they pay you for this experience was working as goon number two in Goldie Hawn's Wildcats, where I made you know for a twenty year old, I worked. Probably four weeks as an extra, making extra scale. And then I had a couple of weeks as a principal, making principal scale, plus residuals, which I still get residuals checks from that film. You know, it's like it's down to like 12 bucks a year, but I'm still getting money from that. At 20 years old, this all happened. Yeah. Just right place, right time. And you, were, right you were ready for it. Right I, look. I think it was mostly based on my look. Yeah. I don't think I was ready for it. No, you weren't, no. huh? I mean, okay. who's ready for it? Well, you pulled it off. You didn't freeze. All I had to do was say, I'm not looking at hey, his jock. You know how hard... I'll say that again, please. <laughs> what was your line? I said, I'm not looking at his jock. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, you we're going to have to see the movie to hear the rest of that one? or <laughs> Then I say, then... Bruce, Bruce McGill, who plays my yeah, coach. Oh, I love Bruce McGill. Yeah, he played D-Day in Animal House. He's been in so many things. Yeah. So many things. Uh, then he says, then you're off the team. Then I say, I'm a senior, no problem. <laughs> that's my performance. Hey, that's great. I mean, that, and like you say, a couple, works as prin- couple of weeks as principal. Yeah, a couple of weeks. First on movie, principal. did you think it would always be like that if you got on another movie? Or did you know how rare and special that was at the time? I knew it was rare and special, and I thought it would always be like that. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Though, you know, I mean, after that, I went and, you know, what happened was I I got an agent, and my agent said, well, if you're going to do this, you need to take some classes. And she sent me to Del Close to take improv classes. And, I mean, I didn't know who Del Close was. And Why don't I st- you tell us? Who is, who is Del Close? Del Close, well, he's no longer with us. Okay. He died. But he's considered the, you know, the father of modern improv. He invented long-form improv. And he's considered, you know, the he's trained any great comic actor you've seen since the 80s has studied with Del. And, uh, you know, from John Belushi, Chris Farley, uh, Steve Carell, Steve Colbert. Anyone that's almost come through Chicago, pretty much, through the improv. Either uh, through through Second City, where Dell was the artistic director for a long time, or then after he left Second City, and he opened up his own improv studio, which is where I studied with him, and that's now called I.O. Chicago. So, when John Belushi was with him i'll assume i don't know well i mean snl started in what 1975 and before that they were doing the national lampoon comedy hour i believe yeah Um, i'm not sure belushi was doing the national lampoon comedy hour oh he wasn't i don't know with that i thought that was like more of a new york thing Mm. i'm not sure 
they all kind of were intermingling to huh. some extent, but uh, I know the Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, and Brian Doyle Murray, and yeah, all those know, guys, Bill all, Murray, Brian Doyle Murray, all studied with Dell at Second City, and uh, when he was the artistic director of Second City, and then in the '80s he left Second City and opened up what has become I.O. Chicago. That's great. And how yeah. did you come across him? My agent sent me to him. Wow. Said go study with this guy. Fantastic. Yeah. So you could have been here in L.A. and you would have been that little minnow in that in this big old sea, as opposed to just being in a place. Well, not that Chicago is any little pond, because it's not. And yeah. I wouldn't want to infer that at all. But you do become a little bigger fish in a smaller pond once you're out of Los Angeles or New York, especially hitting it on a film like that. But getting an agent, uh, being sent to, to, you know, legendary teacher, yeah. you know, that's like probably getting the Stanislavski method from Stanislavski, if you were yeah. a method actor, I suppose, you know. Yeah. So uh, what more can one ask for? It's really amazing. I was too young to appreciate, yeah. you know, what I had. And as you said, Chicago, a smaller pond. So especially in the 80s, not nearly as much production work there. And... You know, most people, many people, people who were more serious about pursuing acting would have left for Hollywood after that opportunity because they had a credit. And they would have come to Hollywood and joined the union and tried to become a working actor. And I didn't take that route. I took, I went into advertising and I just stopped acting because I needed something that paid the bills more quickly. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up, my mom was a Chicago public school teacher, and my dad was a degenerate gambler. She left him when we were little kids, and she raised three unruly boys on her own, which the older I get, the more I, I marvel at how she did that. But, um, you know, we were very poor, and I needed to go get a job. So I sort of forgot about acting and figured, well, maybe one day I'll be able to pick it up again. And then I, I moved, when I moved to L.A., I was able to pick it up again. How old are you? Uh, how old are your other brothers uh, compared to? I mean, are you a middle brother? I'm the middle. The yeah, I'm the middle. I have okay. an older brother and a younger brother. And were you fairly close in age? My older brother's a year older than me, and my younger brother is three years younger. So you guys are all pretty close in yeah. age. I mean, you know, as you were getting older anyway. Yeah. And uh, you all took care of each other, I suppose. If your mom was working, or yeah, and and our grandparents also. Wow. Okay. You know, I remember we spent a lot of afternoons at our grandparents after school. When did you start to think you were funny or realize you were funny? Uh, I think I always sort of knew I was funny. I mean, I, I remember doing a book report about comedy and comedians when I was in like the fifth grade when I was 10 years old. And I always, when I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a stand-up comic. Mm. And I remember actually... We were in improv class, which is you know what we taught, what Dell taught us, and Sharna Halpern, his his partner, and also legendary improv teacher, and you know the founder of the IO Chicago with Dell. Um, she came up one day that the class was uh, held above the theater space in the building. So she came up from the theater one day and she she looked at me and she said, "Hey Niker, can you do stand up? We need somebody to go up right now and do five minutes." And, you know, I was a kid, I was like 20, and I didn't have the confidence to do that, nor had I ever tried it, nor did I have any jokes written. And, you know, maybe a lot of people would have said, yeah, sure. 
and went and tried to improv it. But for me, stand-up has always been like this thing I've held in my heart as special and something I wanted to do. And so I said, no, I don't think I'm ready. And, and then she said, okay, and she found someone else. And I regretted it every day after that until I went and did my first stand-up show. Yeah. Um, okay, just a quick... Sorry, anecdote. I was a theater major here in town at LA Valley College, and there was one season we were put. There was a, a festival, a college festival of plays, and or maybe it was high schools. I don't even remember, but they all gathered, and it was like a competition. And we were, uh, you know, in the local theater department, we emceed and did different things. And George Carlin, it just kind of broken out with the FM AM sort of sure. thing, and. <clears throat> Yeah, I had to get up and do some, and I, David is it knows I was friends with some stand-ups at the time. I went up and just literally did George Carlin, but it was still so <laughs> new to that age range and myself that people didn't quite realize that there was nothing original about what I was doing right. at all. But, you know, again, this was just to fill a few minutes here or there, uh, and I wasn't even attempting to be a stand-up beyond that. Yeah, I didn't, something about me was too protective of the idea of me actually doing stand-up to go and ruin it. Like, I didn't want to go ruin it and have a bad experience. And, you know, I knew I wouldn't do well for some, and I feared I wouldn't do well. And I let my fear control me, and maybe I shouldn't have, you know. Maybe had I tried it, I would have gotten to this a long time ago. But it felt like the right decision at the time, you know. Hey, you know, everyone has their own course. Everybody yeah. takes their own course. Sometimes you jump a little too soon, but there's always going to be a leap involved. There's always a leap yeah. involved, I think. And quite yeah. honestly, I think you take it when the opportunity knocks. You say yes, you take it, you swallow deeply and go for it. You, you just have to. I, that's how I've done my, how I've lived my life. Doesn't always mean I've done well. You know, I'm not always the guy they really wanted, but if if I'm asked, I say yes, and yeah. it's been that way long as I can remember. Well, I took, know. you know, I decided at that time that I wasn't ready to, I mean, I, I, you look at me now, we talked about my size, and, yeah. and you know, as a, a kid, I actually, under this beard, I'm sort of baby-faced, yeah. and... I didn't. I couldn't imagine myself at that age ever being like a leading man. And I'm not a leading man. I'm a character actor, you know? Yeah. But I figured if I was a character actor, I could always go back and be whatever character I was at that age. And uh, I, I didn't have the, um, the self... Respect isn't the word, but I... Esteem, I, The self-esteem, perhaps? yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. I didn't have the self-esteem to pursue it. I thought, you know what, If I, the best I can ever hope for is Ernest Borgnine. Like, that was when the Brat Pack was big in the 80s, right? Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, I'm never going to be the leader of the Brat Pack. The best I can hope for is Ernest Borgnine. Hey, and, you know. But you... I didn't realize how great it would be to be Ernest Borgnine, yes. you know? Yes. By the way, Ernest Who's an, Borgnine. Who's an awesome actor. Oscar winner. Yeah. The Oscar, uh, I'm going to go even a little further than that. I hand-doubled for Ernest Borgnine in one of his last films, even though I didn't meet him, because uh, I was there that day instead of him. But look, you look up his eye on his IMDb, you're going to see a man that in his 94th year had four films in production. 
Yeah. Four Amazing. at 94. Yeah. The movie I did, uh, I was his hand double, it was called The Man Who Shook the Hand of Vicente Fernandez. Huh. So I was the man who played the man who shook the hand of Vicente Fernandez in a flashback. Nice. So Ernest Borgnine, hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. And proud of. Uh, <laughs> but I was only 20. I, I hadn't even seen Marty. Well, you know, yeah, Marty. That's in the story for another day. Written by Patty Chayefsky, who was his brilliant playwright and wrote one of the early pioneers of television uh, teleplays or whatever you call them, Playhouse 90 and all those yeah. things. My first foray into stage direction was a Patty Chayefsky one-act play. Awesome. LA Valley College, where I met our comic. Uh, you know, we've talked about my first roommate, Alan Bursky. Yeah who uh, was also the first and youngest comic to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I'd love and, to meet him someday. Oh, yeah, and hopefully you will soon. Um, and Alan, if you're listening, man, we wish you well. Alan's recovering from something. He should be back up in Adam like this month. And a guest on this show, hopefully by the end of this month, January 2019, or very soon thereafter. And believe me, Alan has some stories to tell. Get well so, soon, Alan. Yeah. Um, well, now, getting back to this. So, Alan was cast in that play, made everybody cut their hair. This was like in 72, 73, so everybody had long hair. I had but, to get a buzz cut for <laughs> Wildcats. Oh, there you go. Well, hey, you were getting paid in a movie. This was a <laughs> student play at Valley, L.A. Valley College. You know? <laughs> but it was, I mean, there's all that Ernest Borgnine connection or six degrees of separation yeah. or whatever. But anyhow, um, okay, so let's go on from this. So you realize that it's a character actor thing and all of that. Yeah, but and I, you, you know, I was, I graduated college and. Is in advertising or what? No, did I was you an English in? major. English but major. But I actually used that stuff that Dell taught me, that Dell and Sharna taught me. Yeah. How to think and how to invent ideas and how to keep thinking of new ideas and the games that they taught me. I use that stuff every day in my job as an advertising creative. I, I wrote um, as an advertising copywriter. I'm still an advertising copywriter. Um, writing ads and thinking of creative ways to express things, but on paper. And, uh, you know, so I use that stuff every day. That's important. And yeah. that's a field that calls for some creativity, probably a lot of creativity if it I don't know. Did he keep you up at night sometimes? Oh, yeah. All day and half the night a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's cre creativity, but it's very constrained creativity. It has to, at the end of the day, it has to fit into a box. And a certain box, you know. And that's why I love stand-up so much. It's me. I get to write what I want and talk about what I want. And I write the jokes that I feel are important to me. And I've been writing professionally my whole life, and it's really the first opportunity I've had to do that. I mean, I guess I could have done it all day, you know, when I got home from work, wrote some more stuff, but uh, and written a novel or whatever. But when you write all day, the last thing you want to do is go home and write all day. Oh, yeah. Sure. You know? Understood. You know. Uh, well, hey, we're certainly glad that you're giving it your all now. That's for sure. Let me ask you this, too. Um as far as your material goes, is it all based on your experiences? Yes, um, all of it. And it should be, I think. 
Um, I mean, there's different kinds of comics, right? Some comics become characters like Larry the Cable Guy. Yeah. Um, but I, I still think that most of his jokes are based on his experiences. They're based on the way I look at the world and things that have happened to me and my reactions to things. And that's how, that's why I'm different than any other comic because only I can tell my story that way. And uh, that's what I love about it. It's a chance to express myself. That's, well, hey, that is what it's about. Self-expression and having a chance to do it. Yeah. So have you always felt the need to create or to be in a creative environment, be it advertising, comedy, background, acting, you tell me? That is really an interesting question because I think when I was younger, I felt the desire to create. Like, you want to be a creator. You want to know how to create things. You want to have the reputation as one of those people. But you have to learn how to create. Like, creativity is a process. It's you don't, It doesn't just happen. There are very few people who wake up one day and, you know, write Beethoven's Sonata or whatever. Except, well, you know. first you have to learn the craft. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things to learn, including perspective. You know, like as you grow older, you gain perspective on things, which you don't have when you're younger. Right. Um, So, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, And? (laughs) I forget. I forget where I... Well, I mean, just that urge, that need. Oh, oh, yeah, it was whether... Do I have the need? So I've always sort of had that drive, but then you learn... That it takes what it takes, and then you have you have you realize you have to have a drive because it takes effort. And so I've had the drive. The older I get, the more drive I have, and the less desire, because I realize desire doesn't create things; it only you know sparks the creativity. Well, that's a good, that's true. That's good. Um, glad that works for you, or it keeps you going. I would hope. I'm hoping yeah. I'm staying with this right now. Yeah, I mean, I love I love doing stand-up. And yeah. even though, you know, I'm not famous, I haven't done stand-up on TV yet. Um, I, you know, the biggest audience I've played for is probably 1,200 people. That's a pretty um, good-sized crowd, Dave. Yeah, Come but on. I mean, that's once. A lot of the times I'm playing for 40 people or fewer. You know, I yeah. do shows around town in bars. Sometimes there's five people there. And... Or do you have a captive audience, though? Yeah, but you have a captive audience. But that's my point is I do it because I love doing it. Right. And I will do it for no people. I mean, I'll do it not for no people. It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I would do it for one person. Sure. I've been traveling a lot. I was in Salt Lake City not too long ago. I don't have anything against other people and their religions. Well, until I went to Salt Lake City. I took the tour of the Mormon compound, the tabernacle and everything. First building we went into, over every doorway, a six-pointed star. Not the kind the sheriff wears like a pizza flopped inside out. Two intersecting triangles. I'm Jewish. My name's David. That's my fucking star. <laughs> so I said to the Mormon lady, hey, what's going on with the six-point star? She said, oh, that's the star of Jubilee. <laughs> hey, you can't just put Belie on the end of it and pretend we're not going to notice. 
son. Oh, that's the cross of Jesus was the best Greek god. <laughs> What's she gonna do next? Show me a Muslim flag? Oh, that's the Mormon flag of all of your gods at Jerusalem. <laughs> David, at this point, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the mutual um, groups that we've worked for, directors we've worked for, such as David Lynch, such as Joel and Ethan Cohen, such as, I don't even know, there's maybe others, but that's pretty much, doesn't get a whole lot better than the Cohen brothers and David Lynch. No. So I worked for a couple of days on Hail Caesar with the Cohen brothers and had a lot of fun. I mean, they really let uh, the extras do their thing. That's what I was doing. And uh, George Clooney, of course, was just a blast as well. But let's hear your story about working with the Cohen brothers. Well, I worked with the Cohen brothers. I was cast. Um, I had auditioned. My agent sent me in on an audition for a principal role as a biker in a Mercedes commercial. And I got a callback, and then when we got to the callback, so you go to the first audition, just the casting director's there. There's like one or maybe two people. You go to the callback, everybody's there. The director, the, the advertising agency, there were like 20 people in the room. And so that was when both the directors were there, the Coen brothers, I learned it was a Coen brothers joint. As it turned out, the the... The commercial, which you can maybe still see online, it was a Super Bowl commercial, 2017 or maybe 2016. 2016, I think. Um, Patriots won that year. I don't. I'm know. assuming. I have no idea. Okay, well, it's pretty um, good odds. <laughs> yeah, I just don't remember. <laughs> Even if you don't follow football, I follow. I just don't pretty remember. Pretty good chance Patriots the won that year. If the Bears didn't win, I don't care. There you go. This year it's going to be the Rams. But hey. It's early. I, I'll bet you on this podcast right now. Go on. One dollar. Go that on. the Bears go farther in the playoffs than the Rams. You do, huh? One okay, dollar. I'll take that bet. All right, you're on. Okay, and That's today is January California. 3rd, 2019. Yes. Okay, you heard it here, folks. I'm uh, L.A. I bleed blue, by the way. Rams have blue. Of course, Dodger blue. Pantone 294, by the way. But anyhow, okay, we'll see. All right. We'll see. So, uh... I auditioned for the principal role. The the what I got was they offered me an extra role on that commercial, so I took it. It's working with the Cone Brothers, and uh, on that set there were like, if you see the commercial, it's it stars Peter Fonda, and the plot of the commercial is we're all at this biker bar having a rowdy biker time, and it's packed with bikers, and so I was one of the bikers in the biker bar, like having a rowdy time, and. Some guy comes, one of the bikers comes in from outside the bar and says, hey, we're blocked in. Somebody blocked all our bikes in. So we're all like, blocked in, and we run out all mean to see, you know, who's going to get beat up because we're bikers. And there's a Mercedes, a beautiful Mercedes in there. And we're all very angry, and just as we're getting angry, Peter Fonda walks out and gets in the Mercedes and says hi and drives off. Well, sort of a joke because Peter Fonda was easy rider so Very we have beautiful. nothing but respect for peter fonda yeah and this the so that's the spot it ran once in the super bowl and didn't run again and it was a lot of fun there was we're with the cohen brothers and it shot up in lancaster which is up in the desert the high desert 
I don't know if it's the high it's desert. About sixty miles from uh, Los Angeles, maybe yeah. seventy from downtown, perhaps. Yeah, the, the altitude is higher. Northeast, it's northeast. Up, starting to get into the mountains there. We're getting into the Mojave Desert, yeah. the base of the High Sierras. And so it's cold there at night. Yeah. Very cold. And the call time was like six o'clock in the morning. Burr. Yeah, and so we get there. It's six o'clock in the morning. It's probably thirty. 32 degrees out which for la is super cold yes and 50 is cold for la yeah Come on, you know so we're on the set <laughs> and here's the first ad the first assistant director yeah. the first assistant director's job like when you see on tv the the person yells action and cut on tv that's the director but in actual reality that's the first ad it's the first AD's job to commandeer the set like that. And the first AD's AD standing for assistant director. Assistant director, and yeah. And there will be a first, there's a second, sometimes a yeah. second second. Yeah. Uh, but it is the first that is the right hand of the director and pretty much runs the production. Exactly. Right. The director makes the decisions, the first AD makes sure they're carried out. So... The first AD is this tiny little, very masculine woman. And she's got, you know, it's cold out. She's got this big black, like black knit cap on and these big thick glasses and this black, like puffy down vest. And she's wearing a flannel shirt. And she's yelling at people. That's her job. Get over here, you know. All right, be quiet. Get the lights over there. Everybody quiet on the set. Action. That's her job to yell that stuff. And she's good at it. So, when we go for morning break or whatever, we come back at 11 o'clock and it's starting to warm up. The sun's come out. Everybody's taking their jackets off. The first AD takes her hat off and her glasses and her vest. And it's Frances McDormand. Frances McDormand. Frances McDormand. She's married to one of the Cohen brothers. Uh, Joel or Ethan. Well, one one of the two, 50-50 there. Yeah. Academy Award winning actress from Fargo and uh, just recently again, or did she win? She was at least nominated for three billboards. No, she won for three billboards. Oh, what a movie, too. Yeah, great movie. What a movie. It's great performance by her. (laughs) Absolutely. Everybody. Everybody. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, hey, I'm going to, here's a segue for you. I think his name is Caleb Landry. I'm not quite sure. Younger actor who was in that movie. He was the guy in charge of the newspaper, radio station. And um, he was also in Twin Peaks, The Return. Yeah. And played a, a horrible character there, you know. Yeah, yeah. But in this, oh, he had a, a little more complexity and great in this movie. Yeah. So now that I've just, we've kind of making that segue over to Twin Peaks and David Lynch. Let's talk a little about that experience because that was also very unique. That what was are some of your takeaways is from being a Black Lodge woodsman. Well, it was super unique. I mean, talk about like working with legendary directors. Yes, David Lynch, you know, and uh, for me, one of the most striking parts of that as the Black Lodge woodsman. Well, I mean, there was the whole experience, which I'm sure you've heard other people talk about, of you know being directed by him and not really knowing like what's happening on the script or really what your character's doing, but just doing what he tells you to do, which I find super effective way of directing. You yeah, know? me too. And uh, but for me, the 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 weirdest experience was the makeup because yeah. as Black Lodge Woodsman, we wore a lot of it. 
And I think you were saying they won an Academy Award for that. Uh, oh, or, uh, well, it wouldn't be an Academy Award. The makeup department, that would be Emmy. headed by Debbie Zoller uh-huh. and special uh, effects. I mean, people that did our hair and makeup, and not just us, but all the characters. Yeah. We're nominated for Emmy Awards. Emmys, you know? yes. Sorry, and, I missed that. Um, yeah, and also they've been featured in their industries, magazines, and you know publications. Uh, the work was outstanding. Yeah, and, and so we would be what two yeah, up to two, three hours in. It, a it was a couple and, hours yeah, easily, and Early you know on, being covered in maybe. black makeup and whatnot. And you know I have this beard, yeah. and they wanted the beard to look sort of grimy and dirty, and they put a bunch of like glop in my beard. Well, was, you remember what that glop was? Because I sure do. Some of it was banana pudding. Uh, yeah, pudding. Yeah. There was pudding. There was honey. Oh, honey, right? There I forgot about the were, honey. Um, you would expect oatmeal and granola, but there was not. Yeah, I mean, at least, you know, a spoon, maybe. But, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, and similar things in the hair Yeah, and all that. Yeah, it was uh, kind of tough, and especially for us, the do-work classes in between. Things like that, because oh, they were just like... Because it would take your makeup your off and stuff, huh? Yeah, that would piss a lot of people off. Yeah. And I don't you got to see where you're going, you know, when, you're, when you have to, anyway. <laughs> um, let's see, what else were we talking Well, you're talking about... That to was me, the-, the magic of working with David Lynch was the spontaneity, the trust, yeah. the outright trust that he puts in his actors, all of them. Yes. Um, I guess that is a good way of putting it, because... And you're acting. You're, you're in doing what the he, moment. Yeah, in the moment. Right you then, he tells you what to do. And the reason being, at least the way I look at it, and I never want to give too much away, but our scenes, the scenes I was in as a woodsman, never had dialogue. Right. There so there weren't in the no script, is what dialogue. you're saying. No. What I'm saying is there was no dialogue to get in the way oh. of the action. Ah. So he could speak to us while the cameras were rolling. Right. He could shout out, or, you know, on, yeah. he, on his megaphone. David likes to make. David is very old school in that regard, you know. So, but he could give us direction while we're in the take. And I'll tell you what, I've never felt more alive or more in tune to the moment. And I've heard similar descriptions from other actors in the same show. James Belushi, who had similar experiences. And if you watch it and you pay, like I watch it with headphones on, and one thing I notice is that David Lynch did the sound mixing. He's responsible for all the sound in that. And Soundscape or... um, you know, there's a, a definite title for it. Yeah. Go on. Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. And so if you know, knowing what we knew about the way he filmed our scenes, I could see there were other scenes where he clearly was doing that, where there was, where he put in the sound later and he must have been talking to the people. And uh, it was just, just amazing. It comes out amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the sounds, some of our sounds, those electric sounds or things you would hear were kind of precursors that we were probably going to be around or, you know, in other words, like, you know, in most cinematic themes, most characters have a theme or something oh, that goes with them, usually much more melodic and something we could <laughs> call a melody, you know. Well, uh, but the sounds also like kind of represent that mood or that yeah. whatever's happening. So yeah. yeah, 
And David's a master of that. And that's why one thing, I'm like, I'm not sure everyone knows that he's so involved with the sound and the mixing. But when I think about that, and I see that his character that he plays is hard of hearing. Gordon Cole. I, yeah, I think it's so funny. Yeah, it's like such yeah. an inside joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could say yes, yeah. it is, because David does have good ears. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, David's ears. David is a musician. David has recorded albums with John Neff, who is a master D- uh, producer, engineer. Somebody D- David Lynch, friends. not me. David Lynch, yes, excuse me. Yeah, well, of course, we're talking about David Lynch. And uh, so John Neff, who is a musician, uh, composer, producer, he does everything from plays bass to uh, puts film scores together. I mean, that's what John Neff does. He's had a bunch of experiences with David. Uh, they have a couple albums out as a, they call themselves Blue Bob, or maybe that's, yeah, Blue Bob, I believe, huh. is the name of the, I did not know. they call the band, certainly the name of one of the albums. I'm going to have to check it out. I yeah. was not aware. The only time David, I heard this story directly from John Neff, the only time David ever performed live, ever, was one time, I believe it was in France, somewhere in Europe, one performance only. And I don't think he, ah, I don't want to misquote or anything, but I don't think he really enjoyed the onstage performance huh. as much as the creativity of being in the studio. Yeah. But John Neff will be a guest on this show either the next time he's in Los Angeles or we'll do it, you know, via Skype or Zoom or one of those things. Yeah, it's but right now I'm looking at David Niker in the eyes and we're sitting about three feet from each other with two microphones pointed the opposite direction so we can look each other in the eyes. And folks, as modern as all of this is today, with podcasting and being able to do all of this by remote, there's nothing like a one-on-one sit-down. So this is still my preference, and 99% of the time I'd rather wait for somebody to come here than rush just so we can do it, you know, over the Internet. Okay, so that's where I'm old school. Take it away, David. I was going to say, it's interesting that you mentioned the sort of dichotomy dichotomy between performing on stage and creating in the studio, because I do both now. I mean, as an advertising creative, it's heavily involved in sitting at my desk and working on Photoshop and working in, you know, just typing creating new sentences and new ads but it's very much in your mind it happens in your mind and i find it extremely rewarding and rewarding in a sort of an instantaneous way like you can see your things taking shape and you can craft them whereas when i go on stage that process is much longer it involves much more like traveling and it also involves a lot more um general feedback like you have to you go out you try out a joke and if it's funny well then you keep it and add some stuff to it maybe and if it's not funny you got to change it and you don't know till you try it out um so it's different that way and so i enjoy both but i totally have experienced both of those experiences and it's like oh i get it now yeah and some people it's funny. Some people, they say, oh, I don't know how you could do stand-up comedy. I could never do that. I, honestly, I don't know how I could not do it. That's good to hear. I'm so glad to hear that. I personally think, 
Stand-up comedy is the hardest of all the performing arts, and the reason why is it's just you. You and a microphone, which is nothing. But that's also the reason it's the easiest, because no, well, nobody tells me, except the audience's reaction, what to do. I'm a guitarist. I've played orchestral instruments from the time I was eight years old. I've hardly ever been out on stage without something to hold on to, without something to keep a beat on or strum or or sing into. I've always had a cover. It's never been just me alone other than a little bit about I told you in community college or something like that. No, I really feel that stand-up comedy is the the most naked of performing arts. It just is of 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 in front of an audience because again, you have nothing unless, you know, unless you're a prop comic or which is okay if you do it right. I mean, you know, Carrot yeah. Top had a great act. Murray Langston, the unknown comic, had a great act. You know, just that paper bag over his face turned him from Murray Langston, sometimes working comic, to the unknown comic, who was a sensation. Same guy, just put a bag over his face, yeah. you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's just you. I think that's another reason I'm going to kind of lead this conversation to another thing that stand-up comics uh, quite often go from the stage, uh, you know, stand-up being alone there in a club and maybe on a few TV shows, to starring in not just being a supporting part of, but having your own sitcoms. I mean, that's more often than not. Um, uh, you know, and I'll give you examples so going right to back the to the early 70s. Starting with Jimmy Walker yeah. and Freddie Prinze, who I knew personally. Um, and you can just go one after another from Gabe Kaplan right through Jerry Seinfeld to Ray Romano to whoever. All the way to, you know. These guys were not actors, but they surrounded themselves with fantastic actors, great, great character actors that made them look good at all times and um you know am i going somewhere you don't or you do you disagree by any means i, I don't mean, know you're more I, than I was to. just considering what you said um well tell me that jerry seinfeld can act but you know i mean what have you seen jerry seinfeld act in since seinfeld and you're not. I mean, you know, I don't think he had any pretenses, though. He wasn't trying to fool anybody. And I'm not trying to demean him. He had the best damn show in the 90s with, uh, you know, that'll live on like I love Lucy. Yeah, I mean, it's a different but skill set. He had Jason Alexander. He had Michael Richards, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. The list goes on. The, play, uh, the actors that played the parents, the other comics, Brian Cranston. I mean... Ray Romano, same thing. Most brilliant supporting cast ever on Everybody Loves Raymond, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm just saying that's been the secret of success. But why? Because a stand-up, a seasoned, or just an experience at this point, stand-up comic, if you can go out there and do it by yourself, you can surely do it with a cast and crew of 100 
into something that you know becomes uh, a team effort from that solo effort and those are the transitions you see more often well i don't know that the two that the cause is necessarily the effect you know i mean i think that stand-up comedy is a place where you can pull that kind of talent and most stand-up comics are you know talented writers and have the aspiration of writing their own sitcom around their own character um well, but I don't think it's necessarily... I'm going to go on a little bit then. Robin Williams didn't have anything to do with writing Mark and Mindy. You know, um, I, at least I would doubt it. I mean, they put him into an episode of, what was it? The uh, It was Happy know, Days. Show, Happy Days, yeah. exactly. And he just ran away with it. But, I mean, he was trained. Robin Williams actually had more training than most, I guess. But um, but it was it was the stand-up that brought him out. You know, it wasn't that his acting ability. I mean, although Robin was a brilliant actor, you know, I mean, obviously played. Yeah, I mean, artists. it's a, it's a different skill, but I don't think stand-up comedy equals any more success at that than any other background necessarily. I just think that you know, stand-up comics, uh, when they have success, also have the skill set, most of them, to write their own shows. And I don't know, like look at Don Rickles. Don Rickles was a great actor. Yes, he was. You see him, he was a hilarious comic. You see him in a lot of films. Yeah. And serious films. Serious Not films doing, by any means. doing acting. Yes, but he but acted he too, by the way. Never. He had Mr. Sharky or whatever, but he they I think they tried him for a few of his own sitcoms and they were never a success. Ah. Okay. And even the Mr. Sharky show was not a huge success. Yeah, I don't even remember it, he played so I a, doubt it. <laughs> he played a, a naval non-commissioned officer. Yeah, you know, it does sound familiar 70s. now that you yeah. mention it. It wasn't very good. I, yeah. I mean, Speaking it wasn't very of, good. Uh, I wish my yeah. program could be as good. But, I mean, you know, as watching it, it wasn't a hit, you know. Speaking of Ernest Borgnine, let's bring it back to Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> what was his show called with uh, Ensign, with... Uh, Tim Conway, oh, uh, and where he PT ran. Boat, where PT are you? Yeah, I know. Where you're going. Mikhail's Navy. Mikhail's Navy. Yeah. Well, those guys were all actors. I mean, and Tim Conway yeah. went on to be Carol. The Carol Burnett show came later for him. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's it. If you never have seen Mikhail's Navy and get a chance to see it on TV Land or one of those things, that was a fun show, as I recall, anyway. Yeah, I, you, you know, know what I've noticed and. Uh, I mean, we, you and I have talked about this before, about corporate, the corporatization of America. Yeah. But um, I think because, and I'm just going to say this very quickly and not go into it and make it sound like a conspiracy theory, but uh, I think because of the way media and media corporations produce today's content and the way they've negotiated contracts with the union, you see a lot fewer ensemble shows and more shows that are built around a core cast of two or three or one person. And um, it's just much more that way now than it used to be. Like, compare shows to the, you know, in the 50s. Uh, like, I've been watching a lot of Perry Masons lately yeah. because I never watched them before. It never interested me. But now that I live in L.A., I can watch Perry Mason and see exterior shots of L.A. in the 50s. Oh, well, And okay. it's, like, fascinating for me. I'm like, oh, I know that place. Yeah. So I've been watching a lot of Perry Masons. Perry Mason used the same actors all the time. 
I mean, it was about Perry, right? And it was about his show, but that whole show wasn't about him. It was an ensemble effort of all these character actors coming together to create the drama play. And you don't see that kind of show as much anymore. Um, you see a lot of the same actors on Perry Mason over and over again, more than you do on like Law and Order. Hmm, I wonder why that is. I mean, you know, time goes on, things change. But I think it's just a different approach to how to make things, you know? Like, yeah, things are know. more individually I mean, centered now. I think it's a matter of what hits when, and then there's usually only one original thought involved, and then a whole lot of copycats afterwards, it seems yeah. to me, in almost everything. Yeah. Everything that has to do with TV and movies, anyway, and... Um, which is another thing we may have talked about sequels and all that and how yeah, or maybe just, that was another conversation but I, most I, most remakes were why did they bother you know yeah in I don't my, know I mean I just instance. chalk it up to a cultural change in the way those things are approached yeah. maybe the way they're financed or the way they're profited off of but the the funnel is smaller there's fewer people involved and that's true of a lot of shows now I don't know. I don't I mean, watch that I much. I cataloged all the shows on TV, but... I, again, I don't pay that much attention to it, but the shows that I'm thinking of are still based on ensembles. Huh. Maybe you I'm know, just watching different kinds of shows. It, it just depends. I mean, you know, I don't really know, but I mean, most... I, you know, if you want to talk about something like Glee, I used to work on Glee a lot. That cast had 19 to 20 regulars huh. in it. And yeah, the reason I even it. mentioned it was everyone was looking for a union voucher, and there were none because all the stand-ins got them. Right. Some pretty funky rules in L.A. about all that, by the way. Yeah. Anyhow, um, but they had a huge cast. Grey's Anatomy, all those medical shows. They have a pretty strong supporting cast, so I... Huh. I would differ with that, but I Maybe really I just don't can't watch those speak kinds to of shows. With, well, which kind of shows are you talking about, David? Well, well sitcoms. We start talking one. about Seinfeld, for example. Seinfeld had um, a cast of what? A, a nucleus of yeah, four, five, four, like four six people. people. Yeah. There were supporting actors, uh, the parents, the Costanzas, uh, whoever, that were maybe not in every episode, but they were there from the beginning to the end. The only casting change I remember is Jerry Seinfeld's father was changed in the first season from one actor to another. Really? Who yes, played Jerry was. Seinfeld's father before you, Jerry somebody, Stiller? No, Jerry Stiller was uh, George's father. Oh. But the actor that started as Jerry's father was replaced pretty early on. I didn't really watch it in the beginning. I just picked up all this on watching reruns years yeah. later, you know. All right, well, maybe that's just my day. perception, and, I, and I'm incorrect. You know, the sh I'm going to be, the shows I watch the most, that I enjoy the most, and I didn't catch on to a couple of these right away. My favorite two shows, I'm going to say, that have lasted longer than everything else or number one, The Simpsons, and number two, South Park. In the beginning, I didn't really think much of Family Guy. I love it now and don't know how I couldn't have loved it from the start. So I don't know how Seth MacFarlane has, has gotten away with what he's gotten away with for as long as he has, but that show is brilliant. Bob's Burgers is a great show. So in other words, it's like the live stuff I can take or leave. The animated series, for the most part, the more adult ones are some of the best writing, acting, and humor 
of the last two or three decades easily huh. with the Simpsons getting the biggest shout out of all, you yeah. know. But South Park, oh my God, they know no boundaries. <laughs> I love you South know? Park. Oh, me too, me too. And I never get enough of them. They're the only things that will make me laugh over and over. I am going to say, though, I think Modern Family has been the most brilliant of all sitcoms from its pilot episode right through wherever they are right now. And that, my friend, is a large ensemble. That's a pretty good-sized cast. Huh. It, brilliant writing. The acting is never let down at all. Well, I defer to you on that, then. You can, you can erase that whole thing I said. Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure it holds up, but I, no, don't, I don't know where. I don't know It obviously doesn't. You know. That was very funny. Very diplomatic. I'm sure it holds up, but I don't know where. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> Not running for anything here. But I can't think of too many series. I mean, you're always going to have a nucleus, but the supporting around them or the, the recurring characters and all of that. I can't think of too many that are really real small, you know. But there are. There shows that, you know beyond the four or five in the cast or two or three you don't see many others but some there's almost always a bar they go to or there's some regular at this place or that place you know that's in almost every show of some sort just so they don't all happen in one room you know if for no other reason you know and then beyond that it's just taste i guess you know, so shows I never thought would get past the first season have been on for 10, 12 years. Other shows I thought were brilliant never made it past the first six episodes. So, yeah. Uh, I stand corrected. Uh, well, you know, I'm sure we're both right. How's that? One <laughs> show I thought was brilliant that yeah. didn't make it past the first season. What was that? L.A. to Vegas. Ah, well, we could talk about that because I know you were in it. And... uh <laughs> You, David Niker. David Niker's my guest. Let me remind people of his name, even though this is a podcast. You should see his name all over this thing. It's probably going to be called the David Niker Guided Tour because you are listening to Into the Woods with Stuart Strauss. That's me. So now that you know where we are and, uh, well, who we are anyway, you really don't know where we are, and it doesn't matter. We're with you. Wherever you are, we're with you right now, aren't we, David? We are Into the Woods. With whoever's listening right now, we're there with you. Listen to me, David. Pay attention. I just okay. got into the woods about my opinions about Perry Mason. There you go. We're going deep. We've gone deep. Hey, and before we close this hour out, and we're just about at an hour right now, and uh, we do have a little live comedy, just a taste of David's work to listen to, which uh, I will intersperse here throughout the show. So you may have already heard some. And you may not have heard it yet, but I guarantee you will. And one more time, let's talk about David Niker performing January 26th at the... Go, David. It's at Oh My Ribs if you want to hear some more David Niker comedy, and why okay. wouldn't you? Now I want to spell that out. It's O-H-M-Y-R-I-B-S, ohmyribs.com. That's Don't correct. plan on ordering St. Louis or Kentucky type ribs it's not a ribs it's not a boxing gym it's not There's a rib no joint sauces or dry rubs this is strictly about comedy it's correct okay oh, no barbecue ribs. damn no barbecue and comedy you're no. making me hungry yeah well 
What can I tell you? Okay, so ohmyribs.com. And David, you have a website people can go to? My website is theinternetiswastingmytime.com. Theinternetiswastingmytime.com. Not a internet or the interweb, but the internet. The internet, not an internet. Okay. Theinternetiswastingmytime.com. You got that, folks? And I'm not going to spell it, but just look it up. It spells just like it sounds. Okay, so the internet is wastingmytime.com is David Niker's website. Of course, my website is stuartstrauss.net. And if you don't know how to spell my name, it's somewhere right in front of you. And if you can't read or see, excuse me, I am so sorry. I do apologize. I'm going to spell that out too. It's S T E W A R T S T R A U S S dot net. I don't know. I don't like this online dating. I'm done with it. I figured it out. They make it, you guys have an online date? They make it like it's buying a couch. <laughs> Choose from our tremendous selection. Pick out the legs you like and the color you want. <laughs> Lay on it a few times, then move it into your apartment. <laughs> but it doesn't work like that, because both people are looking for a couch. Most apartments only got room for one couch. One of you is going to wind up in a friend's apartment. Or like me, free on Craigslist. <laughs> I'm getting a little older. At my age, I want dating to be more like Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> Sit at the table, tell me the history, I'll inspect you for dings, dents, bruises, and repairs. <laughs> then we'll set a value and go to auction. David Nyker and Stuart Strauss have left the building. Stuart would like me to thank you for listening to Into the Woods with Stuart Strauss. He also wants to thank the Into the Woods Orchestra and let you know to listen next time for a special show featuring Michael O'Neill. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of Into the Woods with Stuart Strauss. If you'd like to contact me, use at Stu Strauss. That's S-T-E-W-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. 
both on Instagram and Twitter. On Facebook, use my full name, S-T-E-W-A-R-T-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. To get to my website, just add a .net to that, and you're there. I hope that you've enjoyed this show enough to press the like button, and please subscribe.